You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. You can join me there. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. Good morning, Holy Cross. Thanks for joining us for worship. And as you're probably realizing by now, uh, you're in for it today. You get a full dose of me. And I'm so glad to be able to share in the word with you this morning. We continue in our teaching series through the Gospel of Mark, where we hope to look to Jesus as we've done throughout the whole series. And we aim to hear what Jesus is commanding, what Jesus has to say. This text today deals explicitly with sin. And even the section heading in the ESV translation says, temptations to sin. And it most certainly deals with sin and the exaggerated measures that Jesus seems to suggest in the face of sin. But I want to encourage you to open your hearts and see and hear what Jesus is really talking about here. Because Jesus is actually addressing a lot of confusion that's been going on with the disciples. We know that Jesus is not suggesting actual self-mutilation in order to follow him. And we know that just the disciples have been inundated with so much confusion in this chapter, and you can see that as you track throughout the entire chapter. Just to jog your memory, three Sundays ago, we heard about the transfiguration of Jesus, and some of the disciples saw Jesus standing and talking with Elijah and Moses, and they were terrified and confused, and it was a vivid picture for them and for us that Jesus is not like the prophets that came before him, but instead, he is the one that all of the prophets pointed to. Then the following Sunday, we heard of how Jesus cast, an, cast out an unclean spirit from a boy. And we see the boy's father repenting of his unbelief. And Jesus casts out the spirit. Then the disciples were, of course, left confused because they couldn't do it themselves. And so Jesus rebukes them for their reliance on themselves and not enough reliance on Christ. And finally, last week, we see in the text a series of confusion from the disciples that exposed their barriers to understanding who Jesus is and what he was there for. And that was their inward-focused self-centeredness. So Jesus is looking to his disciples, looking to disciple them in this moment. His closest followers that have witnessed all of his miracles, that have sat under his teachings, that seem to have no idea what's going on, that just don't seem to get it. 
Go back and see it for yourself in chapter 9. The disciples respond every single time with some sort of confusion or misunderstanding. And Jesus is looking to address that here. As he has told them twice now at the end of chapter 8 and throughout chapter 9 about his death and resurrection. And he is teaching them about what life ought to look like as followers of Jesus. And so what we see here primarily in the text is about discipleship. Jesus is talking to his disciples about how to be disciples of Jesus and how disciples of Jesus ought to deal with sin. So Jesus lays out a few things we must first realize in order to be able to follow him well. Let's look at these together. Uh, We must realize the severity of sin, our inability to defeat sin, and the cost of following Jesus. Let's look at first, we must realize the severity of sin. You know, I've had one injury in my life where I've broken a bone. And up to that point, I had never broken a bone before, so I never knew what it felt like. I always took pride in that I felt like I had strong bones, and I never really got injured playing sports. So when I actually broke my right fibula bone about an inch above my ankle, I didn't know that I had broken it. I knew that I felt pain, and I've had really bad ankle sprains before, and I thought it was just another bad ankle sprain. Growing up playing basketball, sprained ankles were fairly common as you jump up to grab a rebound and get tangled up with somebody else's feet, and we would always just say, hey, walk it off. Walk it off. It might hurt a bit because your body was shocked by the pain, by bending away that it's not supposed to, but you're okay. Get some oxygen, get your blood flowing, just walk it off, and you'll be fine. And so that's exactly what I did, because that's what I was used to telling people. I walked it off because I just knew it wasn't that bad. I drink my milk and exercise often. I have strong bones. It's definitely not a broken bone. So I actually go home with that broken leg, walking on it, driving with it, and going to bed with ice packs on it, raised on a pillow, because that's what you're supposed to do. I didn't tell my parents about it because it wasn't all that serious. I've sprained my ankle here and there, and it'll be fine. I've, I've gotten through it before. Lo and behold, I wake up the next morning, and I see my leg swelled up three times its size. And I could definitely feel the break in my bone, and I knew that's what it was. By this point, it was crystal clear that, it, that all signs pointed to a broken bone. And yet, I still held out hope that it was just a bad ankle sprain, all the way up to the point where the doctors actually showed me the clean break in the x-ray. And I'm not trying to share with you how tough I am or what kind of pain tolerance I have, because it's certainly not that. Instead, I think it shows my stubbornness and foolishness in that situation. And I ignored all signs that pointed to a broken bone that my body was giving me. And to think better of myself until I was actually told and given evidence that I believed in. And I share this story to paint a bigger picture of the issue that we live with and are so comfortable living with. And that is that we do not realize and believe in the depth and the severity 
of our sin. Looking back a few verses from our text, you'll notice that our passage comes at the heels of Jesus rebuking this debate that the disciples were having among themselves about who is the greatest. And then the disciples were reporting that they had stopped someone from casting out demons in the name of Jesus because they weren't following us. They're completely missing the mark on so many fronts. So Jesus shows us what discipleship looks like and what it really looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus is trying to convey to them the seriousness of sin. That's very clear. Look at the grotesque and graphic ways that Jesus describes that it would be better to go to these extremes than to face judgment and be sentenced to hell. Look at verse 42. It would be better if a great millstone, more accurately a millstone that was powered by a donkey rather than manpower because it was too heavy and too large and that millstone were hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. It would be better for you to cut your hand off and be crippled. And it would be better for you, in verse 45, to cut your foot off and be lame. Remember that this isn't a time where it was common to see someone with an illness or a birth defect or a disability and point to that as a result of a cursing for sin, whether by their parents or themselves, and still Jesus says this would be a better outcome than to face the consequences of sin and hell. Notice here that he's not pointing to a particular sin of theirs. He could have said so many things. He could have said you're being prideful. You're being hard-hearted. You're being unloving and immature by arguing who's the greatest. But Jesus is pointing to something much deeper here within the disciples. Instead of reprimanding them at each turn of failure, he points to a deeper issue that the disciples are living with, which is a too low view, too low of a view of sin and its effects. In other words, he's not singling out any individual sinful behavior. He's showing them that sin is at the root of all of their failures and shortcomings. He doesn't have to tie sin to any behavior to qualify one sin over another. He's not saying if your hand causes you to steal something, then maybe that deserves a slap on the wrist. But if your hand causes you to murder someone, then you should cut that off. No, this is directly confronting the way that our natural inclinations are to deal with sin. We tend to make light of sin, whether we hide it, whether we deny it, whether we justify it by comparing it to a worse sin. Even worse, at times we lead others to sin, which Jesus warns against explicitly in verse 42. We do this all the time by our witness or lack thereof. We do this deliberately at times for selfish gains and other times passively through a lack of concern for others. As children of God, we are to be ambassadors of God's restoration that he promises. We say in our worship liturgy each week that we are blessed to be a blessing. And yet more often than not, the way we see sin and deal with sin 
leads us to curse God and to curse others by living as those still under the curse of sin. We see the severe way that Jesus talks about sin. And we realize this, that Jesus is not in the business of behavior modification or behavior correction. Jesus is concerned with weeding out the roots of sin in our hearts and planting deeply the roots of his gospel in its place. He knows how susceptible we are to sin. He knows that we have all sinned and fall short of his glory and perfect holiness. He also knows the power and dominion that sin can have over such sinners. So he is helping us to see the true gravity and of any amount of sin in our lives. But so often, this is how we're trained to deal with sin. This is the way that we're told. This is the way of the world. Be good. Live with a certain code of moral ethics and be kind to others. Simply overcome your failures and do better next time. It's just the right thing to do. The world leaves us just as confused as the disciples were throughout because it fails to give us a proper motivation of why we ought to live a good and wholesome life, why we ought to stay away from sin, to cut it out of our lives. Because if I'm naturally inclined to sin, it's so much more exhausting to live a good life. It takes so much more effort and mindfulness to live in a way that is opposite to my natural desires. So we desperately need the right motivation and encouragement to live such lives. Theologian Calvin makes this observation in his institutes and comments his remedy to this problem. He writes, Scripture leads us to a much better source of encouragement. Not only does it bid us refer our whole life to God as its author, it tells us that we have fallen from our original creation and that Christ, in reconciling us to God his Father, is giving given to us as a model of innocence whose image is to be reflected in our lives. You see, the gospel ought to be the proper motivation for the life of the Christian. Knowing God as creator and author of life, we recognize that we are not our own but belong to God. And that as we see ourselves in light of his holiness, we are truly able to weigh the severity of our sin and see the depths of its offense. And then seeing the true weight of our sin gives, the, give us, gives us the proper context to understanding the gravity and the weight of Christ's death and resurrection, which the disciples had not yet understood or witnessed even. Then and only then are we able to properly respond to sin, to cut it off from our lives when we see it approaching us as we fully realize the weightiness of its impact. Any view of sin 
that is less than what Jesus portrays here will only lead us to self-reliance. But those of you that have heard the gospel, those of you that believe in the good news and see Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we know that still that this is much easier said than done. So Jesus not only addresses the severity of our sin, but he goes on to address that. Second, we must realize our utter inability to defeat sin. Look with me to verse 49. It says, everyone will be salted with fire. It's a peculiar phrase that's left even some of the well-studied scholars of the world in muddy waters at best. But what is clear from the context of the passage is that it's pointing to a final judgment of sorts. The fires of hell seem to be reserved for those that do not cut off sin. We establish that sin is severe and its impact in our lives is severe and far-reaching. But it's also impossible for us to cut off sin in such a drastic manner. We are inclined to sin and drawn to our selfish desires. But meanwhile, judgment is coming. And we ourselves are not a source of righteousness. This has to go hand in hand with understanding the severity of our sin. Because once we, get a, once we start to get a sense that sin is a severe offense and hostility towards God, we see that the problem is so deep-rooted and large in us that the solution must come from outside of us. Look again at the way that Jesus describes how we should deal with sin. It's so severe and so extreme. Your eye has caused you to sin? Tear it out. Your hand has caused you to sin? Cut it off. Your foot has caused you to sin? Cut it off. Imagine if we lived this way, really. Imagine if we actually dealt with sin in such severe ways. None of us would be left with any functioning part of our bodies. And where would that get us even? Would we stop sinning simply because we lost a hand or an eye? Would we be any more righteous under God's perfect and holy judgment? If we cut off and tore out every inch of our body, still it would not be sufficient to atone for all of our sins. The Israelites understood this in a way that an offering given to the Lord to win his favor and to atone for sins must be unblemished and the best of what they had to offer to give. In Malachi, we see God condemns priests who had offered up imperfect sacrifices. It says in Malachi 1, But you say what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. No matter how we go about it, if we are blemished by sin, we are unable to overcome and atone for our sin ourselves. So what then can we do to address sin? 
how as disciples of Jesus are we to respond as we encounter sin in our lives daily? Well, it's what Jesus has been trying to teach the disciples all along. He asks them in verse 50, if you, the salt, has lost its saltiness, how will you, how will you make it salty again? If you're unable to do what you are made to do, how will you accomplish that? It's an outrageous question, but Jesus gives us the answer in himself. We find the answer in Christ's death and resurrection. You see, as severe as sin is, even more severe is Jesus' response to sin. He goes to extreme lengths to not count his divine attribute a a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a human being. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His death accomplished a sacrificial atonement for sin that we could not accomplish ourselves. We are far too sinful and far too imperfect. But only by the blood of Jesus Christ is the wrath of God perfectly satisfied. Not only does he make the payment for sin that we could not afford, but he promises us a new and unblemished life in his resurrection. As he conquers sin and death, he shows us that his power is even greater than the severity of our sin, and he gives us a new way forward. Christ alone could accomplish this because he is the only unblemished, perfect person. We are utterly incapable of defeating sin on our own. Instead, Christ does the work. And he calls us to simply believe. To put our faith in him that his perfect work of death And resurrection is greater than the power of sin. Calvin also saw this as the crux of our faith as he writes that this is truly our sole comfort. If believers' eyes are turned to the power of the resurrection, in their hearts the the cross of Christ will at last triumph over the devil, over flesh, sin, and wicked men. This is our comfort. As severe and extreme as our sin is, Jesus goes even farther. As followers of Christ, Jesus shows us that everything about the way we deal with sin ought to be severe. We ought to take the most extreme measures, not to fight sin on our own power, but to flee from sin And to hide in the life that God gives. Jesus shows us by his incarnation, by his life, death, and resurrection, that he deals with sin severely. And he tells us that he has dealt with sin once and for all, and that it is finished. Jesus shows us that as graphic and extreme as his metaphors for dealing with sin are, he is born all of that pain on himself, all of that suffering, all of that sorrow for our good and for his glory. No longer are we required to make a propitiation 
for our sin with the physical sacrifice. No longer do we need to bring an unblemished lamb for the slaughter. No longer do we deal with sin by taking the burden on ourselves. Jesus has done it already to the fullest and final form. Realization of our utter inability to save ourselves should then lead us to seek a savior. We put our full faith in Jesus because we will never triumph by willpower or by our own merit. It's by faith alone that we're able to rest in Christ's work. Theologian and pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones has this to say regarding the preciousness of our faith. Faith is this extraordinary principle which links man to God. Faith is this thing that keeps a man from hell and puts him in heaven. It is the connection between this world and the world to come. Faith is this mysterious, astounding thing that can take a, a, a person dead in trespasses and sins and make them live as a new being, a new man or woman in Christ Jesus. Our faith must be marked by an understanding of our deadness and our inability to be made new apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. And while Jesus in this text does not call us to self-mutilation of our bodies, he does call us to deny ourselves and to lose ourselves for his sake. You see, he says this at the end of chapter 8, after the first time he talks about his coming death and resurrection. Chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would, lose, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This is the last thing that our text points us to and that we must realize about our faith in Jesus and what following Jesus looks like. So finally, we must realize the cost of following Jesus. Our text today ends with a very strange exhortation that we only see in Mark. In verse 50, Jesus says, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And I've pondered on that. It's a strange phrase. How do we have salt in yourselves, in ourselves? We know that salt represents things. It serves a variety of purposes in daily life, with the most obvious one being a seasoning. But I want to focus on a few other purpose, purposes for salt that the, the hearers of this word would have picked up on and how that helps us to understand the, the charge to have salt in ourselves. First, salt purifies. Israelites have long used salt to purify their temple sacrifices as it was required in Leviticus. And we also now know that salt can be effective in killing some bacteria. And so having salt in ourselves in this sense points us to an ongoing 
purification of our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit's work in us that we call sanctification. The Spirit works in us by convicting us of our sins. Some New Testament authors, including James and Peter, warn us that we also should not be surprised by trials and temptations that come our way. Paul talks in Philippians of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Our sanctification by the Spirit is not unlike pouring salt on an open wound. It's painful, but it may just be what we need to survive and be pure. 15th century theologian Thomas Akempis writes this in, the, in imitation of Christ, his famous devotional. Although temptations are so troublesome and grievous, yet they are often profitable to us, for by them we are humbled, cleansed, and instructed. Many try to escape temptations only to encounter them more fiercely, for no one can win victory by flight alone. It is only by patience and true humility that we can grow stronger than all our foes. With patience and humility, we must recognize that Jesus is making his followers to be pure and righteous, just as a pure and righteous God would demand. Because we are sinful, severely sinful, it can be a painful process, but one that is working to build us up in Christ. Salt also serves as a method of preservation. It's, all, it's a very effective preservative that has produced blessings like bacon and ham. So to have salt in ourselves in this way to be, is for us to be preserved for the day that Christ returns. As the Spirit works in our hearts, we're being trimmed of impurities, cutting off self-reliance, and wholly depending on the person and work of Christ to keep us and to hold us fast. Church, we are the bride of Christ who is the bridegroom. He alone is able and willing to preserve us and our purity until he returns for us. We're preserved by him, by holding on to his word, his every word, and clinging to him in prayer. Lastly, salt in the ancient world also signified peace, which I found very interesting. A covenantal sign that signified the keeping of that covenant. But also for many in that time, it also, it also represented peace and friendship. Uh, as bread and salt went hand in hand to signify hospitality and the breaking of bread together. And as Jesus explicitly commands his disciples to be at peace with one another, having salt in ourselves also means that we come around the bread in unity. Jesus is the bread of life, the body broken for us so that we would be spared from judgment, but instead be given new life. So the cost of following Jesus is that we deny ourselves and our desires, that we endure pain and suffering and temptations as Christ himself did, and we give ourselves in love to God and to others, knowing that the one who has rescued us and has paid a price that we could never pay and has given us the righteousness that we could never earn our own, this Christ has given 
all of himself to us freely. Church, what we must learn to do is to cut off our pride and self-reliance and to look to the one who has already known the severity of our sin before time. The one who has responded to our inability with all powerful ability even before we committed these sins. And we must look daily to Jesus in his word and prayer as we patiently and humbly submit to the Spirit's sanctifying work in our lives.